you know, it was an incredible experience, but as they say, more money, more problems. And as I continued to build, I really started growing doubts about the viability of solar energy. Excellent. Cool. Well, hello, everyone. My name is Mark Heineman, and I'm sitting here in Denver, Colorado, joined today by Brian Pickering. Brian's out in California somewhere. Brian, where are you based right now? Berkeley, California, with all Berkeley, the other California. with all the other smarties. I'm just trying to catch up. <laughs> Love it. Brian is an energy policy researcher and uh, entrepreneur. Ryan and I got connected through LinkedIn and uh, from random posting and we've had several conversations and I've just been enamored with Ryan's energy and enthusiasm for kind of life in the energy policy scene, some exciting things that are happening and Ryan's background in particular. So thought it'd be excellent to get you on the podcast, Ryan, and chat more about what you're doing. So let's let's uh, start off kind of with your with your background. Let's start from the beginning. How'd you get into the energy industry? What what where'd you get started? Well, it all started in my science fair project in sixth grade, in which I studied wind power in California. And, uh, you know, there was a early wind farm close to my home uh, growing up in, in the Bay Area. And I was always perplexed with why most of the wind turbines were broken and not spinning. And I considered this a failure of my policymakers and my elected officials. And so I just started an energy in a young age. I did my seventh grade science fair on um, steam engines. I did my eighth grade science fair on uh, hydrocarbons and the difference between the octanes of gasoline and, and what benefits they have for, for engines. And I've just always been fascinated by energy and kind of understood from a young age that it was the... It was the power behind everything. And that's that interest continues to this day. And I continue to learn something new every day. And I (laughs) my favorite thing about myself is how dumb I am. You know, I just don't understand anything. And so in order for me to communicate with the world, you know, I need to understand things from a very basic level. and, And I'm hoping that I can help other Americans understand the energy system better as well through my own stupidity. Awesome. What a, what a humble viewpoint. And I, I think that's a little tongue in cheek also, because from what we've chatted about so far, yeah, you're quite, quite intelligent, but also uh, great to come at things with a open mind and, and be willing to learn something new. So, um, so, but starting from a young age, I mean, that's pretty forward thinking and, and recognizing uh, different energy technologies early on. Did that help motivate kind of your decision about what to study? Well, yeah, because this this wind turbine debacle, I got involved with my elected officials and I talked to Mike Honda, my elected official at the time. And he was like, look, I don't know anything about this. And I agree. They should all be spinning. And it helped me understand government. And I went on to Loyola Marymount University in Los Angeles, and I received my undergrad education in political science because early on I connected that link between energy and the, 
and energy policy. And a lot of my work in college was about, um, you know, electricity markets. And then I also became really interested in restorative justice and truth and reconciliation commissions. I studied abroad in the University of Cape Town in South Africa and studied the Truth and Reconciliation Commission there and and experienced scheduled blackouts on a daily basis. And that was the first time I had kind of witnessed energy poverty. And I volunteered in some of the townships where there was no energy. And so it's all. What was this? Sorry, I want to hone in on this for just a little bit. But Truth and Reconciliation Program? I'm unfamiliar with this. Yeah, the, the acronym is TRC, a Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And this was enacted by Nelson Mandela in 1994 after the fall of apartheid. And it was headed up by Archbishop Desmond Tutu. And they, the company, the, the country was gripped in this transition and all of these crimes that had been committed and the justice system really wasn't able to try or convict any of these people. And so instead, as a form of justice, they went around very publicly to every town in South Africa and allowed people to speak what happened and all these atrocities. And even and then they published all of that in many tomes over the course of seven years so that the truth could be known and justice could be achieved through that. And it even included naming names, which was very controversial at the time. So they, you know, it says that this person did this to me on this date. And, you know, a lot of these things are unsubstantiated because they didn't have the ability to. But here we are and like South Africa has its challenges, but it's still, you know, one of the more stable countries in the region. And I'm interested in that model being used around the world. Gotcha. I, I love that. Yeah, the energy space is so broad. And I mean, I come at it from a very technical perspective, um, but I love that you had the foresight to say, man, this is a huge people problem, too. And how do we help to solve the people problem and chasing the policy um, angle? So how long uh, did you spend South Africa? I spent one year there and um, I've heard from your other podcast that you're a basketball player. I actually walked on to the varsity basketball club and <laughs> traveled Southern Africa playing basketball, uh, Namibia, Botswana, Swaziland. Uh, and um, it was incredible. And uh, yeah, just had a great tryout. And then I think folks realized I wasn't quite as good as my tryout led on, but I still got some playing time. And that was an incredible experience. I always wanted to play college hoops and was able to to achieve that as well. So, you know, between my studies at the University of Cape Town, which is a phenomenal institution and truly the hardest I've ever worked academically, um, you know, I was also able to be playing a lot of basketball. So it was a real dream. That's awesome. And so I came back and I graduated in 2009 from Loyola Marymount in Los Angeles, and I immediately got a job in the seedling solar power industry. Yeah. And that was in late 2000s, right? 2009, you said. 2009. Yeah. Graduated into kind of this recession and saw a bunch of job posts on Craigslist for basically lead generators for solar. And 
I liked solar because it was countercultural, and I liked solar because it was because people said it wasn't possible, and I yeah. loved that. <laughs> and unfortunately, I hadn't studied engineering yet and didn't understand some of the very clear intermittency issues there. Um, but thankfully, I got swept up. You know, everyone wanted to see young people excited about renewable energy. It wasn't even really called renewable energy back then. We were still toying around with the name sustainable energy, green energy, and got a got a great start working in Los Angeles Department of Water and Power. Built my first system in late 2009, and it was a it was a disaster. It was eight dollars a watt. It was uh, BP solar panels back when BP made panels. Uh, SMA inverter, six kilowatt system, cost him a fortune. Torched down flat roof, very problematic. Ended up leaking. One of my few leaks in my whole career. One was on my first job. And Mike, you install the system and then the roof no longer acts as a functional roof. Yeah, that hurt. <laughs> that hurt. This, my guy doesn't return my phone calls. I've always wanted uh, to get right with him, but that was one of my yeah. worst projects. And then we also had to upgrade the main service panel and to, to in order to backfeed power because it was this old junky panel. And so that took many months. And so, you know, it took us eight months to build this little six kilowatt system in 2009. But I persevered. And over the next uh, 12 years after that, I built 7,300 residential solar power systems in Southern California and uh, really drove down the costs. And, you know, my first system was over $8 a watt and my last systems were well under $3 a watt on the roof. So, you know, I saw firsthand like what it takes to streamline operations, what it takes to build better racking systems with fewer components, um, you know, what it takes to uh, scale up a business and drive down costs that way. And, you know, it was an incredible experience, but as they say, more money, more problems. And as I continued to build, I really started growing doubts about the viability of solar energy and ultimately leaving, leading to me making a public exit from the solar industry entirely in uh, yeah. last year in 2021. Yeah, I can dig into that a little bit further, but before we do, I, yeah, let's just kind of walk through the career. I'm, real, real quick, I guess on your LinkedIn page, you've also got Westinghouse listed for about a year before you joined. Um, before I started working on solar power, that's so still. Well, you'll see that that was Westinghouse Solar. Yeah. yeah. A short-lived iteration. <laughs> uh, so my first job was working for Akina Solar, which was a solar panel installer and manufacturer, and they built the first AC module in in American history. And what that meant was all, obviously all solar panels are DC, but it had a factory integrated micro inverter into it. So it was a single component, whereas all other solar power systems had to, um, you have, you field assemble the solar and size it appropriately with either a micro inverter or a string inverter. So I was working for Akina and they got acquired by Westinghouse and my family was thrilled. They were like, oh, Westinghouse is an amazing brand. This is huge. And they didn't own the company more than 
three months before they shut the whole company down. And Aquino was wow. a publicly traded national solar installer. And it became overwhelmingly apparent that we were top heavy and we weren't making any money and service calls were sinking us. So really every solar company I've ever worked for has gone out of business except the last one. And um, I wish them the best. it is a really oh, tough business model because it has all this upfront cost. And then if any service calls occur, that just cuts into your revenue. And, um, you know, one of my many complaints is that we're not properly modeling failure rate into the solar industry, into our to all of these projects from residential all the way up to utility scale. And we can we can talk about that. I've got some some juicy. I, yeah, I, I definitely want to hear a couple of stories about that. But I think that's a problem across the energy industry. You know, I see it in oil and gas often, um, right? Where guys will model, okay, you've got this huge capital cost up front. You go drill a well, and then you've got an opex for the rest of the project. You might have one to four work or work over every every one to four years, which would be comparable to a service call. And if those if that frequency is wrong or the cost is substantially higher than you're modeling, then yeah, it can totally flip the economics of the project. And some of those ideas are captured in solar, like degradation of solar panels or soiling on the solar panels. You know, there was always a couple percentage points there, but what we weren't anticipating was catastrophic inverter failure. A catastrophic mm-hmm. might be uh, the wrong word, widespread inverter failure. Because so, if the inverter goes any which way out of pitch, it turns off. And then the whole system goes down. And the inverter, yeah, the inverter is the critical component taking the electricity from the panels to the grid, right? Yes. And it's always been the weak link. It's always been the Achilles heel. The solar industry has always known about it. And... We always modeled, you know, the conventional solar inverters had a 10-year warranty, so we always modeled that it would fail in year 13, and then it would be a $1,300 cost to upgrade it, and that included a truck roll somehow. But what we didn't do, we assumed that we would roll that truck immediately, and what it turns out is that we have a ton of service calls at any given time. These houses are all spread out all over. These projects are all spread out, and these components aren't available because they're 10 year old inverters that have been discontinued. And so, you know, by the time I left my last position, I had well over 1000 service calls in Northern California and Southern California that I, and I was, (laughs) I dedicated my life to, you know, keeping these systems online. And I was working for a very reputable company with excellent equipment and that's how I knew that the whole solar thing was was hollow because even at the very best companies, they are drowning in service calls and inverters yeah. are down for months. And this leads to unbelievably upset customers and and it flips the project economics. Oh, miserable. So pivoting from Westinghouse to the, ne- the next group, um, I mean, was that... Westinghouse shut down, laid off a bunch of staff. Were you part of that? And, and then how'd you find the next gig after that? Yeah, I was uh, I was on my first adult vacation in Laos and got an email and it was like, Westinghouse is over, uh, just as I had again. And that 
our sold pipeline was going to be acquired by a company called Real Goods Solar. And I had never heard of them at the time, which is funny because it turned out they're very aligned with my brand. And it's this crunchy Northern California solar company that had also expanded nationwide and become publicly traded. And they're very famous. So that felt like a good fit for you. Then. You're like, oh. yeah, this makes sense. Oh, this is going to be great. And they were going to build and they acquired Westinghouse's uh, technology. So they were going to you know, build all my jobs as is. And then I would start selling new projects through them. And so it was great. And I so I was unemployed for like four hours and uh, immediately went into the next thing. And this company had better financials, uh, a more developed labor force because solar labor is entirely unregulated and wild and it's basically just experience based. And these folks had been doing it for so long. And, you know, if you look in the history of real goods, maybe some of your listeners know they had a whole earth catalog that they would send out um, the, this off grid living catalog, not the whole earth catalog. That's something else, but the uh, this off-grid living catalog. And they they claim that they built the first commercial solar power system in 1978 in the United States. And it was for a cannabis farm in Mendocino County. And, you know, off-grid solar, hey, that's a, that's a decent option. Solar is a decent option when you don't have any other options, that's for sure, <laughs> um, for a little bit of power. Yeah, but, uh, keep the lights on. So they had this like crunchy identity, which was really working in California. So I was able to sell the brand and I, you know, was very successful with them. I sold for them for three and a half years. So I was selling projects, literally getting on the roof and measuring them by hand, then designing them on my computer in someone's living room and then selling it to them and then signing all the paperwork and then project managing them and then, you know, bringing Gatorades to the install. And it was an incredible experience, you know, and I really thought I was doing the right thing at the time. There was kind of this perception that every solar photovoltaic electron was making the world a better place. And I really didn't understand grid balancing or like our reliance on natural gas in California um, and the duck curve and all of these sure. issues. But I had a great time at Real Goods, but unfortunately, it started getting really rocky and they became RGS Energy and some some investment bankers took over and it was it was time to get out of that. And also, I wanted to become a manager. I had been kind of a, an energy consultant, as they're called, for five years at that point. And I wanted to manage other people and continue my career. So, you know, SunPower Corporation is the name in solar. I don't think I'm exaggerating when I say that. I mean, Solar City had a reputation as well, but SunPower was this manufacturer of equipment that also worked with a local dealer network, which I really identified with. I, local labor is excellent. And especially for solar, it's just it's what it takes to get it done, especially on custom homes. And so, you know, they told me I probably wouldn't get the job at SunPower because I was only 25 at the time. And uh, this was to manage, you know, most of Southern California for SunPower Residential. Uh, but just like I had a good tryout at University of Cape Town, I had an excellent interview at SunPower. <laughs> and they just said, hey, he's either crazy. He's crazy, but we'd be crazy not to hire him. That's what they told me later. And um, 
you know, I've really found a home at SunPower. I worked there for seven years, almost eight years, and and I loved it. And I really, I gave I gave everything to that company. I ran a social media called SunPower Everything. It was, and I was obsessed with this 100% renewables vision that was really emanating out of Germany and California. And I thought that SunPower would be central to that. And yeah. I thought I'd work at SunPower for the rest of my career. That was, I told people that often. And it was with them that I built, you know, many thousands of solar power systems and, and elevated their brand. And, you know, they're one of the dominant players today. They've gotten out of utility scale solar, which was interesting. I was there and they, they're now fully focused on residential, better margins. And yeah. Was that the primary driver? Uh, I was there when we built a project called Solar Star, which was the biggest solar farm in the world. Northern Los Angeles, Lancaster, Antelope Valley. PV solar? Yep, PV solar, 579 megawatts. Wow. I remember I was talking to one of the lead designers and he said, Ryan, we will never build a system of this size again. No one ever will, because it was such a juicy power purchase agreement that they had signed and it was all subsidized and it was bought by Berkshire Hathaway and, but he got it, you know, he got his big tax credit out of it. And then he, they signed a power purchase agreement with Southern California Edison for some catastrophically high price per watt. And I'm sure Southern California Edison is just regretting that power purchase agreement every day. There's no storage on it, no nothing, just a single access tracker. So I saw like the biggest solar farm in the world go up and I've been to the site and it's truly as far as the eye can see. And it was extra expensive because we took all these environmental um, endeavors to to be light on land. It was the first quote unquote light on land installation in the world. And we had I, all. I don't know what that means. What's what is light on land? Well, our biggest competitor was First Solar and they had about a gigawatt of different farms down the street and they got lambasted because they bulldozed the desert and just gotcha. scraped it flat. Yeah. And cause that's kind of how their system worked. It had to be totally fat, flat and created all this dust. It released a, a fungus that was in people's lungs. It, you know, it was environmental devastation and it was pretty embarrassing and we didn't want to be subject to that. So we had this, technology where we're, you know, just putting the metal into the ground with no concrete and with this, okay. you know, so drilling little boreholes to install the mounting posts and the racking systems. And okay. even the treads on the boreholes were very light so they wouldn't destroy the, you know, the crust and, and it took forever, you know, it took so yeah. long. And then like all the workers came and just walked all over it. But, Anyways, I will admit, like it has water drainage systems. So if you look at Solar Star on a map, you'll see areas that don't have solar so that, you know, water can pass through. It had fox sized holes in the fences so it wouldn't bar wildlife from moving through. I mean, they, they, and I was so proud of it at the time. I was like, we're doing this is what, like, this is what it takes. And, um, you know, and then to, our stock soared huge party i remember you know when we finished that and then our stock really tanked after that and 
never really repaired because we just couldn't show any, there's no reoccurring revenue. You know, you make, you build these projects, you put everything in and you make this much money and you always go over. And so you make even less and then you have to just do it again and again and again and again. And the only way that solar sustains itself is just by constantly building projects. And that wasn't possible as, as the environmental regulations got stricter and as utilities looked at these PPAs and said, it doesn't make any sense for us. We don't really want random daily power. And so I, I watched as the utility scale division shut down and then the commercial division shut down. And now today we were the little stepchild. Residential was this cute thing we also did, you know, 10 years ago. And, and now it's it's 100 percent of SunPower's business. Wow. Okay, so were most of the systems then that you installed residential? All. All. Okay. I worked side by side with a lot of commercial developers, but my specialty was residential. And my, you know, I I grew up, my father's a carpenter, so I really have an appreciation for the difference of each house and rafter sizes and roofing types. And I really liked like how wildly different custom houses are and how much care it takes to do a good job and not destroy someone's largest asset. And yeah. so I always stayed focused on residential. I also felt that it was important that residential be done well so that because it leaves such an impression on the public. And if we're going to succeed with renewable energy, then we have to have these we have to have happy customers at the residential level. And so I, I continued to pursue that. And the fact that the margin was there and also the, the decision cycle is very short. If you can meet with, you know, the, the, the husband and the, 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 the both people, all the decision makers, people can move forward today instead of yeah. these commercial contracts that take years to negotiate. Um, and, you know, by the end, we were signing people up in a one call close, as we called them, and building them. Three to six weeks later, just wham, bam, thank you, ma'am, if it was a nice, right. healthy comp shingle roof. I imagine as part of the sales team or project management team, I mean, was there a commission associated with each sale? That, that the guys that I know that go out and try and sell systems, that's often a model that's I've seen been used in the industry where there might be a commission with each system sold. Yes, this, the energy consultants are paid the most of the whole value chain. It almost kind of bothered yeah. me because the solar installers are not paid very well. There's no union protection. And, and right. meanwhile, these like kind of like slick salespeople were making, you know, 200 grand pretty easily. And, right. and, and leveraging that ability to sell because only some people can really do that. And it would, and pushing the, the cost, per watt down so that they could make more money. And so right. we kept sacrificing, we kept cutting corners to drive costs down so that we could drive costs down to the consumers, of course, but also increase commissions. Potential to commission margin. And the sales groups were going around from all these different companies, Sunrun, you know, Clean Power Finance, SunPower, Vivint, SolarCity, Tesla, who was right. my biggest nemesis of all. I thought SolarCity was a terrible company. I'm happy to talk to anyone <laughs> about that. And I think it was Elon well, Musk. Let's comment on it. Why, why? Why is that? I don't know. Oh, I was there. I saw the I saw the very first SolarCity systems going up in 2007 as a student studying them. And I was like, oof, these are not 
great, you know, and they like they're expensive or they weren't good. They were technologically they were bad. The cheapest. Solar City was always okay. the cheapest. And it was the conduit runs that really bothered me. You know, like the solar looked okay on the roof, pretty clunky erector set looking thing, but it was these these conduit runs just strapped to all over the roof. <laughs> this looked horrible, you know? And it, you know, people would wear them as like this kind of battle scar almost like it's supposed to be a badge of honor like i'm doing the right thing but also like yeah it looks like hell but i'm doing the right thing like and <laughs> and then like i just feel like they deceived customers a lot they work they undertrained their sales reps and they would say oh you will have no energy bill if you go solar which was uh, which has never yeah. been true you have a connection fee and that it really bothered me and then you know what we're seeing is that tons of customers defaulted on their leases and then you know, and they had to get paid off and it was embarrassing. And then, well, I don't remember 2016, you know, Elon comes and bails them out with, because they I mean, they never made a cent and puts the Tesla brand behind it. I was actually there. I've never told this story publicly, but I, someone gave me a ticket. I was at SunPower at the time. I wore essentially a disguise and <laughs> went to Universal Studios Hollywood to the set of Desperate Housewives. No, yeah, Desperate Housewives. And we're in Wisteria Lane, houses all around us, this big stage. Elon comes out and he's like, you know, the future has arrived. And like, this is like big graphic of Solar City and Tesla coming together and just becoming Tesla. And he was still selling stockholders on this. And yeah. he said, the big reveal, he's like, every one of these houses is solar powered. And it had the solar roof on it, these solar shingles. And it was an incredible moment. You know, you can look it up on YouTube. People were looking around like, whoa. And I even didn't notice. I mean, it was so far out of bounds. Right. And it looked amazing, too. They had curved tiles. They had slate roof. They had all these different styles. It was unbelievable. And then he pushed a button and all the garages opened and the Tesla cars drove out on their own and then there were power walls batteries in the garage and this was just when the power wall two had been released too so it was the power wall one before and it was this clunky dc system now it was the power wall two which is an ac coupled uh home battery and people were just melting in awe and it was hilarious and i stuck around they had great food like all these food vendors came and they had product experts standing outside of each house, like answering questions. Mostly it was Tesla stockholders there and like big, big wigs. It was so cool. Sure. And first of all, I like looked up and the, the, none of the power walls were plugged in. None of the solar was, you know, it was all fake. Um, and <laughs> I remember like sitting, listening to some big wig, like talk to him. He said, okay, well, you know, I have a flat roof. So I want to put these, those these roof tiles out out in my yard and the engineer's like well you wouldn't you would just do regular solar panels really and he was like no no i want these on my hillside i want to do a hillside of these and the guy was like okay we'll take that into consideration you know <laughs> and like you know does it face south <laughs> seven years later you know the solar roof does exist i i said it wouldn't at the time um but it's gone through many iterations. They never came out with like the curved tile or any of those. It just has this kind of standardized single look to it. And I mean, it's still the total albatross. And 
I still believe that acquiring Solar City was Elon Musk's biggest business, a poor yeah. business decision. And it could, it could pull down the whole company because it, if these assets continue to underperform and it's on their balance sheet and they keep they keep restructuring the leases to make them work for customers. So it's like, oh, well, it's only producing 70% of what we said it was going to do. So we'll restructure your contract and you'll be happy. And they're like, I'm not happy. I'm having to buy more energy from the utility. And so, you know, you everyone kind of knows that Tesla Solar is still the cheapest, which is odd because Tesla was the most expensive. But Tesla Solar is the cheapest on the market to match the Solar City identity. And so they make no money doing it. And you have to get a power wall now. And it's all led to this, you know, soft energy, distributed energy resource future of today. And, you know, I'm we're in this huge heat wave in California. And we're using these Tesla virtual power plants. And the, so it's all connected. And I can't believe how far the renewable dream has gotten in California. Um, but we're going to face some pretty hard truths in the next few years, just like Europe is specifically. Yeah. Germany. It's uh, it's going to be very expensive, and I think there's going to be a lot of come to Jesus moments. Um, you've alluded several times now to uh, leaving the industry and perhaps commenting about some of the issues, um, and not the energy industry, but leaving or pivoting away from the solar side. Um, can you talk kind of about your exit from solar and and kind of what happened and what your thinking was and things that you started to become aware of? Well, I saw this film called The Big Short. I think that was in like 2017. Phenomenal. One of my favorites. Yeah. Great film. And I, upon reflecting on the film, came up with a theory called subprime solar. (laughs) And I can tell you, it's a very unpopular idea Um, (laughs) within the industry. And I started ringing the bell on it. I really, because I basically had this theory that most of the solar is financed in California under a lease, a power purchase agreement, residential specifically. Okay, so let's step through that real real, real quick for, for listeners that aren't familiar, right? If you own a house and you want solar on your house, you don't necessarily, many of these models are built, so you don't have to put all the capital up front. The company might finance it, spend the capital to buy the system, and then lease it back to the resident, right? Yeah, and we were saving customers as little as $1 a month. It was very common. And people were like, but I have solar, so it's better. And I'm saving money. And we were selling them that like, yes, it has an annual escalator of 2.9% or 3.5% or 2%. There's, we were playing all kinds of games with the escalators, but that is escalating lower than the utility. So you'll actually save more money over time. Cause look at the utility, they're going up six, 7% in California. And I'm telling you like, you gotta be over a half a million financed solar systems in that manner, either through an unsecured loan or a lease or power purchase agreement. They're all functioning the same way in that they're making a monthly solar payment instead of making a monthly. Well, I'm just going to clarify one more time. We take the old utility bill of $200 a month on average, and we lower it to $20 a month. You still pay the utility, you know, and that's a full offset system. You still have a $20 a month bill. So we're reducing the bill by $180 and we would charge $179 a month for, for the least 169, maybe 159, 149, you know, like if it was a really easy job, you could get the cost down. So there was this story of like save money right away. And 
I mean, that is now so pervasive. You got door knockers all across America telling that story. And it all started in California. And but here's the thing. If the inverter pops, which it does, they always do. It's just a matter of time. And the whole system goes down and your bill immediately goes back to $200. But most of the contracts are structured that you still keep paying your solar bill of $100. So now you're paying utility bill and you're paying a lease on a system that's not functioning. I have seen this for thousands of customers who their old bill was $200. And these are often like middle class people who were doing it for the financial reason. They didn't even care about solar. They were like, I'm a savvy person. And so now their bill has gone from $200 a month to $379 a month. What are they going to do? They're going to stop paying their solar bill <laughs> immediately. Which, and the capital's not recovered for the initial investment, right? Like presumably, because most of these projects are financed over what, 10, 20 year life lifespans? Almost always 20 years. Some of the yeah. loans are now 25 years. Um, and yeah, so, you know, it's, it's an appropriate thing to do to not pay for something that's not working and (laughs) you would scramble to go fix it. But I mean, I, I, on some houses, I put five inverters on them. They just kept popping. And some of these inverter models were very problematic to the point where we would have to change manufacturers entirely and we would have to rewire the roof we would have to go up to the roof flip each panel add a you know an optimizer or something like that to just get the system working again we're talking tens of thousands of dollars of cost to us that we never anticipated and that's crazy and so you know i talked to my boss about it and he's like ryan this is one of those things that you just ignore you know, this is not your job. This is not, this is someone else's job to figure out. And I got so hot and bothered that I sought out the CEO of SunPower and I said, I have to meet with you. I, I have to. And I brought it up with him. He's no longer the CEO. Um, and, you know, he entertained me to a certain extent, but he made it clear that this was not my job and that our company had, had done, had the best per- performing portfolio. And so, and therefore I should feel good. And I was like, all these systems are going to fail. And like, we should buy them all out. And that was my business case to him. I said, we should start a fund and start buying up subprime solar assets, recycle the old equipment and build something brand new. And he was like, yeah, I don't think the market's ready to hear about that. We just really like, we're just becoming legitimate. So we don't really want to talk about like, you know, <laughs> this huge glaring problem that's going to yeah. surface inevitably. <laughs> and I respect his position on the matter, but it that did put a crack in my foundation in 2018 that continued to, to widen. And I started seeing way more issues and, you know, things started getting really heavy in 2020 when a report came out that, you know, the polysilicon rare, uh, you know, raw material that panels are made out of, all of it comes out of China and 50 of it is touching these labor camps that have forced Uyghur labor. And 
I, you know, ran, ran it up the pole and we confirmed, you know, SunPower is an unbelievable organization. I'm truly the best solar company and like fight me about it. Like I, we, we tried <laughs> hard and we proved that our supply chain, we had always had a killer supply chain and we confirmed it's from Malaysia and it, we're not doing any of that. Um, though it is to a certain extent impossible to find because the polysilicon trade is so nebulous and there was never anyone really looking into it. So no one can really say if they were subject to it or not, but at least 50% were. And then the tariffs started coming down and it was just destroys the economics of the projects, right? Yeah. Yeah. And that, you know, that was another thing that really hurt utility scale solar is when you have a sold project, it has to be built in a certain amount of time. Right. You have a contract that you said we agreed we're going to build it for this price. And then if a tariff gets slapped on, they then have to pay an extra fee and you can't renegotiate that contract. And yeah. So it, it all became really intense. And, you know, meanwhile, I didn't mention that I did an online program at Stanford University in 2013, 2014. Uh, yes, yes. And it was this emerging energy programs and it was wind, solar, storage and smart grid. And back then, I mean, even today, those are like the words, you know, that's like the incantation of the future. And I had a few professors, including Dr. Mark Z. Jacobson, who's quite famous for writing the 100 percent renewables for everything yep. uh, concept, uh, which has now spread around the world and was cited in the Solar Futures Report from NREL. And that was cited as a primary source in Biden's solar plan. So, you know, this guy's very influential. And I recall in his class that he said that, you know, he explained, someone brought up nuclear energy and like, hey, it's clean, da, 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 you know, and like, why don't you build that into your model? And he was very explicit that nuclear energy is a dated technology. It is too dangerous, too expensive, too firm in that like, it's not flexible. Uh, which is important. doesn't make any sense at all. <laughs> and then and finally, that even thinking about nuclear energy took away from the essential quest of 100 percent renewables. And it was a waste of innovation to even think about it. And you know what? I believed him entirely. And like, yeah, that makes sense. Of course. Yeah. yeah. From 2013 <laughs> to 2020, I don't think I thought about nuclear energy once. I just, I just, you can, it, we're, renewables people, we get like really, really hyper-focused on single projects. And, well, I, and I find it really projects. sad because you're talking, I mean, you're talking about this culture that gets generated of like really hardworking people, like want to do the right thing and are willing to work often for less, right? Mm -hmm. and, and are really smart, really intelligent. And they're like, oh, we've got this super hard problem. We want to go out and help the world because we think it's the right thing. And not realizing that some of the fundamentals are really, really broken and or perverse. So, yeah. Yeah. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm talking through a lot of that with my colleagues right now, uh, who my former colleagues in the solar industry. And, yeah. you know, because the cracks are really forming and these service calls aren't stopping. They're just growing. It's it will right. never get ahead of it. It's the problem is exponentially multiplying. and so I, in 2020, just 15 months ago, you know, I'm reading this thing in the paper about 
we're closing Diablo Canyon, the last nuclear power plant. And it's said that in it California. generates yeah. the last nuclear power plant in California. And it's hidden, like no one even knows about it in California. It's hidden on this place called the Pecho Coast in San Luis Obispo. No one, you can't see it. It's, you don't drive by it. Everyone's seen San Onofre and San Diego. Cause Which is sad because it's beautiful in my opinion. But oh, <laughs> it's, it's a very special place. Yeah. And it said in the article that it produces more power than all rooftop solar in California combined per year. I was like, oh, damn. <laughs> like, <laughs> what have I been doing? A bit of power, you know, because we, we did, while I was in the industry, we celebrated one million rooftop solar systems. It was out in Fresno, I think. It was incredible. And I'm, I'm like, you're telling me one system produces more than one million systems? And I, I just, you know, I'm not an engineer, but I'm like, mm, that's. I don't think you, could, you need an engineering degree to understand something the, about the that. Yeah. yeah, it's like tremendously unbalanced. And so I got really curious and I started studying nuclear energy while I was at SunPower and getting really distracted, which I don't, you know, I really like, if you're going to work, like, do a good job, you know, and okay. it was starting to affect my work a lot. And I came up with a startup idea and I just let my, I let my bosses know. And I said, you know, I'm, I'm like, I'm going to go into the nuclear industry. And people were shocked. I mean, <laughs> shocked. And because I was really like, you know, I was one of the big flag wavers. If you yeah. follow me on LinkedIn before the, my conversion. And uh, so it was time to, to make a switch. And thankfully, I was welcomed with open arms into the nuclear advocacy community. And, you know, my, my background in political science and also the little research I had done, I realized that in order for a cultural change to happen towards nuclear we would need to build a better business case for nuclear. Yeah. And a hundred percent. That's, that's rampantly obvious. If you're, well, we'll, we'll say if you're under a uh, uh, retirement age and have worked in any other sector of the energy industry. Yeah. It took me 12 years to figure it out, but you know, it happened and I, you know, nuclear is just not seen as a business solution right now. And that, that's kind of what I'm building my startup around, but I knew I needed to learn more. And so for the fat past year, if you've been connected with me on LinkedIn, I, I am a nuclear advocate and an energy policy researcher. And I am just reading everything I can about the energy landscape as a whole, uh, the pro-nuclear movement. And, you know, thankfully, I, I just got involved with some of these nuclear advocacy groups, including Stand Up for Nuclear, Mothers for Nuclear, Save Clean Energy, Generation Atomic. I joined all of them. And, That's uh, great. Like, yeah. I'm unemployed. I mean, I got the whole startup <laughs> idea, but I'm generally yeah. unemployed. Was collecting unemployment um, <laughs> insurance and yeah. just be became a, a nuclear advocacy and advocate. And I've traveled the world. I went to Brussels for an event that we held uh, in favor of keeping the Belgian reactors online and then we planned an event in Berlin to keep the six German reactors online. This was end of last year. Three of them are now down just 
yesterday they announced they're going to keep two of them on in an emergency position. Don't even get me started. Um, <laughs> Germany is blowing it, just blowing it. And then um, I got really involved in the Save Palisades Michigan nuclear power plant. And that went very well and really got some prominence from that, along with Climate Coalition, which is a, another nuclear advocacy group. And it's looking like they're going to turn Palisades back on and, and add some advanced nuclear components to that job site. But it's quite a complicated project. And then all leading to Diablo Canyon, which is scheduled to close in 2025 until last week when I, you know, we all went to the Capitol and they presented this bill and somehow it was voted between the assembly and the Senate 100 to four to keep the nuclear power plant online. That's crazy. It's a complete 180 from where it was two years ago. Right. Like, um, and people talk about public sentiment all the time and, oh, I just don't think it's popular. And here you have, yeah the overwhelming majority of public uh, representatives endorsing in, it. Right? Yeah, in in one of the birthplaces of the anti-nuclear movement, maybe the birthplace, Northern California. Yeah. And um, so we're feeling we're feeling our oats for sure now. And I think is nice. I think is I think it's going to change world history, um, frankly. Over time, the narrative will narratives will come out about this plant, and and the fight isn't over. They only extended for five years. The plant has another has a forty year life left on it, usable life left. Yeah. So, so there's going to be a lot of talk of extensions and everything. And there's also going to be some restorative justice aspects to it. As I, you know, what I studied in college, what I learned is that there's a uh, indigenous group that's trying to reclaim the land where Diablo Canyon nuclear power plant sits on the California coast. And I met with the tribe many times now and learned an enormous amount from them. I learned that they helped some of the tribal members help build the reactor 45 years ago. They are, there are a lot of members of the tribe that are very pro nuclear and they wrote a letter to the governor and helped change the governor of California's mind on keeping the power plant open and in the bill that just passed 100 to 4, there is a, a clear path for the tribe to get their land back and regain sovereignty over 12,000 acres of California coast. And um, that story is is really going to help the world realize the incredible opportunity, not just for businesses, but for indigenous people to uh, host nuclear infrastructure on their land. Awesome. Ryan, we're coming up on our time, um, which I, I feel like just 10 minutes has gone by. You're, you're such a captivating storyteller. Um, but you know, we'll have to have you back on to talk about kind of your startup and your business uh, sometime in the future. Um, but I want to touch on just a couple of points or ask a couple of questions. Like when you were thinking about pivoting away from solar, what were some of the biggest compelling points and why, why nuclear? I, it took me 12 years to figure it out, but the sun sets, it just every <laughs> single day, it does it. You look a little older than 12 years old. I feel like most people get that figured out by the time they're like, you know, a child. <laughs> but Dr. Jacobson from Stanford and everyone else is putting all the eggs in energy storage. And they just said, oh, we haven't invented it yet. And I remember Dr. Jacobson saying like, hey, build all the wind and solar you can and we'll add storage to it later. So go crazy because we have that technology now and we'll fix it later. And what it's 
becoming very clear is that energy storage is long duration energy storage, especially chemical long duration energy storage. It's just not going to happen, you know, not, not even yeah. close, especially because it's so everyone's competing for these chemical storage um, raw materials. So, uh, so it was really, it was the realizing that energy storage uh, it cannot bridge the gap that, fossils currently bridge for renewables um and therefore and then also i will say sun power is owned by total which is one of the biggest country companies in the world and they are a they are an energy company mostly fossil and i realized that all of the renewable companies were owned or in some subsidiary of, and uh, of fossils and then i it gets so much deeper than that you start realizing that renewables only work because of natural gas and it's yeah. that we're just building a very expensive hybrid and everyone's laughing to the bank except for ratepayers and that and that's who my allegiance is to um yeah. at the end of the day that's I, there's not a lot of people that identify that but yeah the whole renewable movement is fantastic for every natural gas company's business <laughs> their bottom line i cried so like, i cried when i found out yeah Right, because especially if you're doing it where you're like, well, we want to stop climate change and we want to debunk or you know make the fossil companies go out of business, yep. and then you realize you're just helping them. <laughs> yep, yep. The world's not ready for that message yet, but I guess your yeah. listeners now now know it and can and we can talk about it. It's a very complex, even philosophical change that's going on right now. So we're gonna Absolutely. have to be patient and gracious with people in the years ahead. Yeah. And, and and stay committed to the truth and stay committed to working class people and stay committed to small businesses, because if we keep increasing the cost of power, we're going to keep increasing the cost of everything. And life. Yeah. And society will collapse quickly um, if we keep doing that. And so now I see that that's actually a far more relevant challenge than climate change. And we can solve climate change as a byproduct of, you know, solving with nuclear energy. But I look forward to talking so, on that with so you. you came to that conclusion. Yeah, yeah, next. I love that. So um, real quick, what, what advice do you have for young folks? You got to go for it. You got to go for it. You got to go for it. And even better than that, the best advice I ever got on business is RRR, relationships, relationships, relationships. Invest in the people around you and learning from them and in working with them because you, we get one life. So if we don't like what we're doing, like what's the point? And what gives all of this structure, whether you're a social person or not, is the relationships inside of this. And so continue to invest in others. And it may take time for the path to reveal itself, but it, it will. And, and it's more fun to do it together. Brian, I think that's a fantastic note to end on. Like I said, we got to have you back on, but it's been wonderful chatting with you. Thanks so much. Thank you, Mark. Thank you, everyone. <laughs>